more of the good stuff. Cliffcentral.com A very, very happy new year. The year 2015. You are listening to Professor David Block. And I have the honor and pleasure and privilege to present today with you, uh, to present to you rather, Looking Up, Looking Up with Professor David Block. Of course, being the new year, so many memories rush through the memory back, uh, and bank. There's just so much at this incredibly frantic time of year that floods our memories. And we're going to be covering some fascinating topics today, topics such as, what is time? Have you ever thought, each one of you, uh, you have a schedule? What actually lies within that schedule? Well, at the very heart of that schedule is time. Have you, allow me now to tickle your neurophysiological processes, meaning to tickle your brain. Uh, what exactly is time? Have you ever thought of that? You know, we say, I haven't got the time to do A, B, C, or D, or I'm in gym right now and I'm gymming and I'm spending one hour on this wheel or that wheel. What actually is happening? What is time? Or you working, uh, in KwaZulu-Natal, uh, near Belito Bay and, uh, Time is flowing, time is rushing on, but uh, what is time? I've had the privilege of being down in the Umschlanga area over the Christmas New Year period. And again, the question uh, confronts one over and over again. The clock ticked, and of course it ticked magically so until it clicked to midnight, on December 31, and then, you know, there were elations around the world. The clocks ticked into the new year, 2015 from 2014. But again, the question really is, what happened? What is flowing, if you like? What is time? So we're going to be discussing time. We're going to be discussing the issue of the blood moons, uh, 2015 being purported by many as the end of the world. Um, something's just popped up on the screen here. Does time really exist? That's, this is exactly, uh, just exactly what I'm addressing today. The question is, does time exist? Um, does space exist? A reply might be the clock ticks and the years pass and we age and die. And time is the only thing we can be certain of. But my question to all my listeners today, my dear listeners today on Cliff Central is, what is time? What are the blood moons? What are the theories around the the prophecies, the end of the world scenarios? We just passed our new year. There's certain doomsday scenarios doing the flooding the internet and 
the media about blood moons and we'll be looking at all these different concepts in this one hour you're listening to professor david block my personal webpage is www.davidblock.co.za that's www.davidblock B-L-O-C-K, David Block, one word, dot C-O, dot Z-A. But I'd love you to feel free to reach me in studio. I'm ably insisted today, assisted today by our sound engineer, our precious sound engineer, Duncan. You can reach me in studio, uh, 0861 That's 0861 you're welcome to reach us on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Starry Galaxy Man. At Starry Galaxy Man. You can follow all my feeds there. But regarding the show today, our Twitter feed is at CliffCentral.com, Instagram, CliffCentral, Facebook, CliffCentral, and your WeChat ID is CliffCentral. You are listening to Professor David Block. We are looking up. Early on in the new year, 2015, to the concept of time, to the concept of the blood moons, to the concept of doomsday scenarios, hoaxes, and the end of the world. Uh, We're going to have a little spot of music right now while you let your questions reach me, either by telephone 0861-555-189 or via Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or many use the WeChat ID. Sit back as time floweth and listen to a little bit of Vivaldi. Welcome again to all our listeners on Cliff Central. You're listening to Professor David Block. We've just been thinking about that which rules our agenda from day to day, from moment to moment, and that is the concept of time. And I would like to assert that there are very, 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 very few people less than 1% of the population on our globe who might actually have an inkling as to what time really is. Of course, we know how to measure time. We even have atomic clocks. The the watches we wear measure something. They tick forth, tick-tock, tick-tock. TikTok. But the question really is, what is this flow of time? What is actually happening? Is time real? Is time an illusion? Now, many years ago, this question really bugged me. It was really hot on the agenda of David Block is, what is this time? 
And of course, you know, the one thought that immediately raced through my mind or the one conclusion was, well, maybe time is a westernized concept. I mean, let's just think of this for a moment. If we take one of our uh, San, uh, the San people, say, in Namibia or in the Northern Cape, imagine that they on, are on some sort of hunt for, say, an earlunt. Well, they're not carrying a watch with them, surely. And uh, does time exist to the in the mind of a San, as it does in the mind of David Block? That's a very, very real and poignant question to ask. Does time exist uh, in the mind of Duncan in the same way as time exists in the mindsets of hunter-gatherers of ancient years? And so I, being absolutely enthralled by what I'd call the river of time, the flow of time, I knew that we could discuss time uh, with ease mathematically, you know, the kinematic equations and so forth. But what exactly, you know, if we say V is U plus AT, where U is the initial velocity, A is the acceleration, and T is the time, what is that T? What is that uh, the symbol T actually delineating? And so many years ago, probably led on by the fact that the ancient San or Bushman never had a watch, I actually wanted to meet up with a group of people who never ever had seen a watch, who'd never worn a watch, and to try and ask them what is time. Now, please do remember that there are very few uh, locales on this globe where one can actually fly to uh, and meet people who have never seen a watch. I think it's becoming exceedingly rare in today's world to find anybody who has never seen a watch. Because I believe that the moment one sees a watch, uh, one immediately uh, latches on, as it were, to the Western notion of time. The Western concept of time. But uh, Kimberly's just reached me via WeChat. And Kimberly, God bless you. It's good to be back in studio. And thank you just for your most encouraging words, Kimberly. Uh, so happy to have you back, Professor Block. Well, lots of love and hugs to Kimberly across the um, the Internet lines. But just like Kimberly might wear her watch, what is Kimberly's timeline? What is Kimberly's clock actually measuring? And so I had this notion uh, many years ago now to try and find a remote group of people who had not ever been uh, influenced by missionaries, perhaps, or westernized culture, or just, I wanted to explore how do cultures who've never been influenced by westernized thinking uh, appreciate what we call time. And I was, I just looked at the globe and I put my mind to this task as to where would I find such a culture? Of course, there are not many sand people left, and those who are left have certainly seen clocks before. And so I needed to fly somewhere very, very remote to actually meet 
people who uh, have never seen time before, never seen a clock before. And fortunately, I found such people. Now, if you take your computer and Google Papua New Guinea, that's P for Peter, A, P for Peter, U, A, for Apple, Papua, New Guinea, uh, you will see maps. Just Google and look at images. You'll see myriads of maps of Papua New Guinea. So Papua New Guinea lies to the north of Darwin in Australia, right up north. If you travel to Sydney and you go up north to Cairns, you then fly to a set of islands uh, called Papua New Guinea and in general called uh, Micronesia and Melanesia. Now, in the mountains of Papua New Guinea, you will meet people, Duncan, who actually eat one another up. You meet people who uh, existed, at least for many years or for centuries, uh, by means of cannibalism. And so... I knew that if I could be taken by boat to some of the very remote parts of Papua New Guinea, I stood my very, very best chance of meeting people who experience time, but not in the way that you and I as Westerners experience time. And I believed that if I was able to meet them, I would actually be able to unlock the secret of what time really is. What time really is. Because they've not seen a a Cartier watch. They've not seen any of your favorite brands of watches. They haven't seen a Pierre Cardin watch. They haven't seen a Rolex. They haven't seen any watch whatsoever. And so in the year around 2002... I flew from here to Sydney and then went right up to northern Australia to the city of Cairns. And uh, after that, I was about to embark on the most incredible journey. The journey was going to take me into the very remote highlands uh, of Papua New Guinea, mountainous areas, and saw... My journey began trying to explore this incredible notion of what is time. Uh, I was so excited when the craft landed, the aircraft landed from Cairns at Port Moresby because I knew I was on a hot trail. I was so excited. I was just so, my, my neurophysiological processes were so pumping with energy and just vibrance and joy because I knew in a couple of days I'd be on a boat and I want to tell you a little bit about that boat. We're not talking about the Queen Elizabeth II liner here. We're talking about a boat that rocked so much that you threw up most of the time. I mean, it was an extremely primitive state. And when I went into the mountainous areas of Papua New Guinea, that's when, you know, all the lights in my brain were simply lit up, lit up. I, it was just an incredible experience. I mean, I met people who traditionally wear masks. You know, I met people who don't wear clothes. I met people who, you know, have not perhaps seen Westerners for many, many years. Some of them in the remotest of islands perhaps have not seen a Westerner uh, before. 
have not seen an aircraft before, have not seen perhaps a boat before. And so I was very, very privileged in undertaking this journey to Papua New Guinea. And, you know, you and I think of a house. Think of your house. Well, generally a house in South Africa would consist of walls and a roof and a fence and a door and so on. Well, in Papua New Guinea, in days gone by, if you look at uh, ancient books, such as the book by Lint on Papua New Guinea, the Papua New Guineans actually... Uh, Many of them, several of them, lived in a house in a tree, just like you have a nest built at the top of a tree. They'd, their homes were built on the tops of trees. So I was intrigued. I mean, I really wanted to know how does a person who lives in a tree house appreciate what we call time? I believe that if I could unlock their brains to tell me how they're experiencing this flow of something, we would be onto the hottest trail yet of what time really is. And so I had interpreters, I had guides, uh, I remember I had a satellite telephone, and I was taken into the thickest of jungles in Papua New Guinea. I remember walking through the jungles in search of those who'd have the answers of what is time, uh, I was taken into the thickest of jungles. The humidity was at around 98, 99%. The temperature was in the 40 degrees mark, 40, 45 degrees. So it was a little, you know, wet with sweat. But as I walked moment by moment, and there were, you know, many of these Papua New Guineans carrying these huge knives, much larger than assegais, uh, on all sides of me, and, of course, being a white man, I suppose, was an added attraction. You know, perhaps some of them had not seen a, a white person before. I do not know. But I was just determined to become their friends, to um, not necessarily to sit down, but to probe their mindsets as to what time really is. And so there are a couple of thoughts and questions on the screen as I'm talking. But before we go to those, you're listening to Professor David Block. Our New Year resolutions are made in time. It's the year 2015. And the question we are trying to unpack today is what is time? You can reach me, Professor David Block, and studio uh, 0861 That's 0861 uh, Twitter at cliffcentral.com. And then Instagram, Facebook, or the WeChat ID are all Cliff Central. So we have some thoughts on the screens in front of me. And, uh, you know, one of them is very interesting, you know. Why do some people say that they never have time to do anything? Well, that's a question I'd like to address head on. Uh, don't they all know that we all have time, but we, that we all don't have time, but we all make time? Well, that's interesting, of course. We all make time, but what is it that we are making? So if we think back to these ancient Papua New Guineans, who've never seen a clock, never been influenced by any culture in the West whatsoever. I knew that if I could speak to them by means of interpreters, 
I would unlock one of the great, I would unlock the answers to one of the greatest questions ever asked, and that is, what is time? And I knew we were totally fooled. Uh, I knew I was totally fooled as a scientist in the sense that I've been reared, you know, in astrophysics and relativistic astrophysics, but, you know, the, uh, heavily, heavily, I'm heavily westernized, and my concept of time is thus totally warped, as in a sense. But I had a hunch that if we probed the minds of the ancient Papua New Guineans, the minds of the San, the minds of the hunter-gatherers in the Namib Desert and elsewhere, we would unpack the incredible notion of time. After a little break with Vivaldi, I will tell you what we found deep in the mountains regarding time, deep in the mountains of Papua New Guinea. Don't go. What a joy it is on this 2015 to reach you uh, at cliffcentral.com. You're listening to Professor David Block, and our subject today is an enthralling one. What is time? And we'd love to hear from you. People such as Kimberly have already reached us. We are waiting. People such as Andy Minnett and Gary Reavis and Jackie Reavis and their fans and followers light up the screens. And so, back to Papua New Guinea, back to uh, mountainous domains, back to people who perhaps have not seen Westerners, uh, perhaps never seen Westerners, or perhaps just very seldom seen Westerners. And so the question before me was the question, the same question that was before Professor Stephen Hawking, uh, who's written, of course, a book called A Brief History of Time. Now, Professor Hawking is the world's most famous living scientist, uh, as many of you know, and he has tried to unpack the notion of time. And he's argued that, in his mind, time is space. Time has the same footing as space. In other words, if you think of, for example, let me just give you what, how Professor Stephen Hawking thinks about time. If you think, for example, of um, me walking into studio today, or perhaps let's even become more basic, if you think of a sunrise, well, you take certain snapshots, and if you put those snapshots together into a sequence, like such as a video sequence, you say time is flowing. But what Professor Stephen Hawking would argue is that every snapshot is a snapshot in space. That's true. 
Every snapshot is a spatial snapshot. And when you string them together, then you get a sequence, and then you get a time sequence, such as you see on a DVD, for example, of the rising sun. But Stephen Hawking would argue that time and space are on the same sort of footing. It's just that, and so Stephen Hawking has proposed that we live in a world of space. He actually calls it super space. And then what he does, which is very, very clever and very, very ingenious, is in this world of super space, he says, each one of us have a unique trajectory. So our audio engineer, Duncan, would have his trajectory. I would have my trajectory. You'd have your trajectory. And these are made up of infinitely many snapshots in space. And you string them together and you get what's called uh, the river of time. So, Professor Stephen Hawking thinks of time in exactly the same way as he thinks of space. He doesn't any see any difference in his world of superspace between time and space. So again, for our listeners, I know this becomes very difficult to understand, but if you think of the rising moon, for example... Take your camera out, you take many, 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 many different still photographs, and you put them together, and you get a time sequence, a little story in time, or many of you might be mothers or fathers, and you take snapshots of your children, and growing up, and you've got snapshots in time, uh, but all they actually are, each snapshot, every snapshot, Per se, each snapshot alone is in fact a spatial snapshot. It's a photograph of your child, for example, just spatially so. And so I was very intrigued to know, uh, Duncan, what would the uh, people living in a treehouse actually think of time? And so we started asking questions, we started asking them questions, we started reading books about how they think, how their mindsets work. And what was terribly interesting, it was absolutely fascinating to me, was this, that they thought of time in exactly the same way as Professor Stephen Hawking thinks of time. Now, this is extraordinary, because here you have one of the world's greatest minds, believed to be the second Einstein, as it were, Stephen Hawking, the most famous scientist on our planet today, uh, without any doubt. And here I was talking to people in Papua New Guinea who thought of time in exactly the same way as Stephen Hawking thinks of time. Now, that's absolutely extraordinary. I think to think that the mindset of an ancient Papua New Guinean or the mindset of a San uh, who has not been influenced by our culture think of time in this highly sophisticated way uh, that Stephen Hawking thinks of time in terms of super space, that they are on par is thus meaning that the Papua New Guineans and the San are not primitive at all. 
I think Western culture has made a huge and grievous mistake by saying that, you know, uh, look at these primitive tribes in Papua New Guinea. Yes, it's true that they, you know, according to the Westernized concept of time, they might be uh, they might look primitive because they don't have houses with doors and fences and so on. But in terms of their thought processes, uh, they out, they rarely ride out, you know, if you think of a comrade marathon, they ride out there in the front winning the Olympian gold medals with regard to their concepts of time. Now, how does a Papua New Guinean think of time? Well, if you take a traditional Papua New Guinean, living in the jungle somewhere with no watch. They look, for example, at the rising of the Pleiades star cluster. They look, for example, at the rising of certain planets. They look, for example, at the rising of the moon. They look at the positions of the stars. And that was so interesting to me because I was taken, as I've told you, by boat, and to the different islands. And so, the one night I went to the captain, in quotes, of this little boat, and uh, I said to him, how do you know where you are? Now, of course, the, a pilot again would say, well, we're just going to haul out our GPS, and I'll be able to tell you where we are. And so, I asked the captain, in quotes, as I say, of this ship, how would I actually, how do you know where to take me to next? And the Papua New Guineans came up with a fascinating answer. He said to me via interpreters, he said to me, we know where we are by means of the positions of the stars spatially. Now that was, that was unbelievable. I mean, if you think of a cricket match, that bowled me over a zillion times because he was replying to me in exactly the same way that Stephen Hawking, a former Lucasian professor of mathematics at the University of, um, at the University of Cambridge would have answered. And so here I was. And we were traveling with this boat in the middle of nowhere. And yet he was navigating me moment by moment from point A to point B. And he always took me exactly to where I wanted to go. But time for him didn't really exist in terms of a clock. He wouldn't understand time as I, as a Westerner, understand time. But he understood time far more profoundly and far more deeply than I could ever, ever, ever imagine. Because he thought of time spatially. He thought of time in terms of where are the Pleiades in space? Where is Venus in space? Where is this bright star or planet that we'd call Jupiter in space? Where are we with regard to spatial concepts and spatial domains? And that's exactly uh, the answer, which I never thought would be found in Papua New Guinea, but it was, is that time equals space. Space equals time. In other words, to a new Papua New Guinean, I can't say to you, let's meet for lunch on a Thursday, because there is no Thursday. Let's meet for lunch. Well, there is no lunch, because there's no westernized concept of day, of night, of lunch, 
of a Monday, of a Tuesday, of a Wednesday, of a Thursday. And so they took me through the jungles and they kept on thinking of uh, these incredibly sophisticated concepts, which I deal with every day, uh, time, but in terms of a spatial framework. Time entered in exactly the same footing as space. As I say, just think again of photographing, say, a glorious volcanic eruption. You photograph it. Uh, spatially. In other words, you take your cameras and you photograph it and you photograph it again and again and again and again and you string that spatial concept together and you say, wow, Professor Block, here we have a volcano erupting in time. True, but all it really is is the sequential linking of spatial snapshots. So, in the mind of Stephen Hawking, time and space are on the same footing. Time equals space. Space equals time. Space is then, therefore, superspace, in a sense, is forever there. Because in superspace, there's no beginning and there's no end in the westernized uh, concept of space and of time. How amazing to think that I traveled around the globe, I traveled to Papua New Guinea, I went to meet people who were former, possibly former cannibal, cannibals, I probed their mindsets, and at the heart of their thinking was a concept of space exactly equal to the concept of space as unlocked by the greatest living mind alive today, that of Professor Stephen Hawking. We are going to be moving after our music break to, Professor, to, to the question of uh, blood moons and the blood moons and the end of the world scenarios, 2015. Do please dial me on zero eight six one triple five one eight nine, Twitter at cliffcentral.com, Instagram, Facebook, or WeChat Cliff Central. This is Professor David Block, and you are with me, looking up, questioning what is time. And now that we've got answers to that, what are these blood moons and the end of the world scenarios? But first, in the river of time, or space if you like, a little bit more of Vivaldi. What an awesome privilege I have today to be reaching you from the cliffcentral.com studios here in Ravonia, South Africa. And it's Professor David Block, and we've just been un having a lot of fun today unpacking the notion of time. Now, of course, with the metric results just having been announced, many of our younger listeners might be asking the question, how do I 
for what degree should I really enroll? You know, if I'm fascinated by these concepts, which I've been speaking about, what sort of uh, degree should I enroll for? And I asked those questions many years ago myself when I was in matric is, what career path should I want to follow if I want to follow astronomy? Well, here are my thoughts, my considered thoughts, and my answers for all our matriculants who might be following us today on cliffcentral.com. One has to find one's passion, just like a golfer has to find their passion. And once you know your passion is, for example, astronomy, what degree should one follow? Well, here goes. First of all, one would need to study for your Bachelor of Science degree. That's sort of the first little brick in building the house, is you need to enroll for a BSc. So studying for a Bachelor of Science degree, you know, I would think that, you know, all of our major universities offer uh, the Bachelor of Science degree. And generally in first year you might study four subjects. For example, I studied mathematics, applied mathematics, computer science, and applied mathematics. So, you know, those were four subjects which I studied. But you can have your own potpourri, your own mix. But the important thing is to start and one needs to start following your dream by means of a Bachelor of Science degree. Now, it's very interesting. In the Bachelor of Science degree, adverts, we have what's called a project. So that's a topic which students answer in their second or third years. So some of my third-year students, for example, might choose a topic on time. What is time? Some might choose a topic, what is space? Some might choose a topic on the life of Einstein, and so forth. And so that gives you a unique opportunity to start, to start on this grand journey of um, becoming an astronomer or uh, astrophysics. Now, once you've got that far and you've got your Bachelor of Science degree, then you can go on and very quickly you can do your BSc Honours, uh, which I did in Applied Mathematics. You can do your Master's degree. You can do your doctorate. And the, the sky is literally the limit. You know, in South Africa, people often ask me, Prof, why are you not at Harvard, for example? Or, well, I'm privileged to work. Some of my closest friends are at Harvard. But the point is, I've always stayed in South African and on South African soil in time because I want to motivate, I want to ignite, I want to motivate the leaders of tomorrow. I'm so excited when I see matric results. I'm so excited about our leaders of tomorrow. I want to see their mindsets lit up. I want to see their mindsets on fire. I want to see them alive. I want to see them dreaming. I want to see them reaching for their dreams. I want to see their dreams fulfilled. Uh, I want to see their hopes, their aspirations, their ve the very core of their beings ignited. I want to see our matriculants of tomorrow book their seats for the Nobel Prize in a decade or two's time. I am living. I am alive today here at Cliff Central to ignite the mindsets of our precious young matriculants and our young leaders of tomorrow. Kimberly asks this question, 
Uh, hi, Prof. Doesn't time also represent the vibration of atoms like an atomic clock? Uh, Colin Atterbury asks that question. Kimberly asks, Professor, is time travel possible? Well, these are fascinating questions, Colin and Kimberly. They're absolutely riveting questions. And, you know, yes, of course, uh, in astronomy, when you look up at the night sky, in a sense, just by looking up, you're traveling back in time. Let me explain. When you look at an event on the sun, you're not looking at the event as it is now. But, for example, if we see an explosion on the sun now, it actually occurred some eight minutes ago. We're looking back in time. It's taken light eight minutes to reach our eyes. So, indeed, we're looking back in time. When I look up at the Milky Way and I look up at the stars in the Milky Way and then when I look at galaxies past the Milky Way, I'm looking back in time. And astronomers can never look forward in time. Astronomers are always looking back in time. When I look at you, if you were standing in studio today, if I was looking at Colin or if I was looking at Kimberly, I would be looking at them uh, looking back in time. So in that sense, in that sense, the time travel is awesome because I study galaxies 60 million light years away, 120 million light years away, and thus forth. And so every time I look up, in a sense, it's time travel because I'm traveling back in time. Because if you ask the question, is it possible to jump onto a spacecraft and, you know, to go into the past? Well, You'd need to get to distant galaxies. But as I say, you know, just by means of gazing up at the glorious starry vaults of the Milky Way or the Via Lactea, we are in a very real sense without any spacecraft traveling back in time, uh, Kimberly. And to Colin, uh, yes, again, time can be measured by means of the vibration. If you think of the cesium atoms, for example and the atomic clocks, and as measured by, say, the uh, cesium chronometer, uh, is used to keep time through, but it doesn't define time. Again, these are clocks, which are amazing, exceedingly accurate, but uh, they're used to check out or measure that which we've been trying to unfold today, the river of time. In the last couple of minutes, as I wrap up, uh, we haven't really had much time today <laughs> to talk about blood moons, and perhaps I'll reserve that for next week. It might make a very interesting chat on its own, uh, the question of the blood moons and the end of the world in 2015. So, Let's just look at some of the other questions. Professor, what is your take on people who say they never have time to do anything? Well, of course, this is a question, a very important question, and just we everybody has 24 hours. Every listener on cliffcentral.com has exactly, exactly the same amount of time. But we don't all have the same amount of stress. Some people hearing my voice today are sitting 
under tremendous blankets of stress. So yes, each one of us has exactly the same amount of time, but some of us have an incredible amount of stress. Going back to Papua New Guinea, I remember meeting a lady who I reckoned was about over 90, and she was living in a little house, not made of walls and a roof as it were, but just a little straw uh, dingle-dangle, if you like. And what amazed me about her was that she was, she had zero degree of stress. So she had the same amount of time as you and I have, but she had zero stress. I saw young people. What does it take? What does it cost today to, to amuse a young child? 7,000 rand for PS4? Yes. 7,000 rand for peace. There's a tremendous degree of stress in our westernized lives, which people in Papua New Guinea don't experience, or which many people in Papua New Guinea don't experience. So time and stress are integrally related because some of us take on too much within the window of time. So when we say, when somebody says to me, I haven't got enough time to meet you, what they're saying is, I have got enough time, but I'm choosing my priorities. And in my list of priorities, that is not number one. So when I say, if I ever dared say to somebody, I do not have time to look you in the eye, what it means is I choose not to look you in the eye. We all have the same amounts of time, but we do not all have the same amounts of stress. Again, another question, the concept of space. Could I explain that very, very briefly in the last two minutes? What a pleasure. What a singular honor. Of course, you and I live in a three-dimensional spatial world. You live, move, and have your being. You drive your car in space. Uh, you measure the size, the width, the height, the length, the volume, if you like, of your exhaust. You measure that. And we live in this incredible world of space and of time. But what I've tried to suggest in today's crossing is that time and space are inextricably married, are inextricably linked. And to the question I've also answered is, can we try and travel back in time? Well, astronomy, the realm of astronomy, offers one the most unique opportunity to actually travel back in time. Join me next week. Professor David Block signing out from cliffcentral.com. Join me next week as we home on to some of the most exciting themes of our times. Looking up with David Block. Thank you so much for your questions and for joining us today. Goodbye and Happy New Year.